You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Defense mode. We're survivors. Like, help with them. In our head, but they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today we will be speaking with Dr. Martha Arellano, Associate Professor of Hematology and Oncology and Program Director of the Hematology and Medical Oncology Fellowship Program at the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Arellano. Yes, hi. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So before we jump into the topic of AML, what brought you to the field of medicine, specifically hematology and oncology? Yeah, so that that's sort of an odd story. When I was <laughs> an internal medicine resident, I was interested in going into infectious diseases. So I spent a lot of time on the infectious disease services in the hospital here. And at that time, I asked my program director for a hematology rotation so that I could learn the basics of taking care of patients with HIV and other infections where blood cell abnormalities such as anemia are pretty common. I like to take care of my patients in sort of a holistic way. So I wanted to get the tools that would allow me to do that. And so my program director initially said, you don't need to learn any hematology, you'll just learn that on the job. But <laughs> I insisted, <laughs> and finally I convinced them to allow me to have two weeks of a hematology rotation in the hospital. And so during the first day of my rotation, I was consulted actually by one of my colleagues. I think I was a second-year resident. He said, my attending wants you to see this 80-year-old man with low blood counts. And uh, he was in the hospital for a bloodstream infection. And so I thought, well, you know, that, that's kind of silly because if you have a severe bloodstream infection, abnormal blood counts are pretty common in that setting. But being a good resident, I decided I'll go and evaluate the patient. And I made a peripheral smear of his blood. So I'm dating myself because we don't do that anymore <laughs> manually. <laughs> and so, lo and behold, when I took this slide, and actually it happened to be the current program director of the Hematology and Oncology Fellowship at Emory and his colleague that were my attendings. I'm not sure why I had two attendings at the, <laughs> on that day. <laughs> but they were both sitting there at the microscope waiting for me to arrive with this peripheral smear. And so I started looking at these cells and uh, one of them said, so what do you see, Martha? And I said, wow, I'm, I see all these funny looking, but they're kind of pretty. They have a lot of granules, and I described what I was looking at. And so um, <laughs> the program director said, so what do you think 
we're looking at. What does this look like? And I said, is this acute promyositic leukemia? And he said, yes, it is. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. I looked at somebody's blood, and I know what they have. Based on that, I usually have to order a lot of tests to figure out what's wrong with somebody. And so that day, that, that was an epiphany, and I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is it. And wow. so, yeah, so it's kind of crazy because it was toward the end of my residency when other people already had fellowships. And I had, you know, I had gone through sort of some infectious disease interviews. So, but I was drawn to a specialty where you can use your clinical skills to examine a patient, you can look at their blood, and you can come up with a diagnosis with, you know, very little use of technology back then. We have newer technology now at the molecular level, but to me that was just so interesting. And then the other side of it is that I found that hematology patients are some of the nicest patients that you could meet, and I felt like I could really make a difference for them. And so after that, I spent the next few months trying to convince the hematology fellowship program director to take a chance on me. Initially, he said, we have offered all our spots, and usually people don't decline fellowship spots. But then he called me and said, you know, we decided to go ahead and take you anyway. And I've never hoped to do anything else. You know, I've, I've never gone back on that decision. I think it was the best decision I ever made. Wow. No, that is, that's an awesome story. It's always interesting hearing the doctors, you know, say what it was that really propelled them into their career. There's one doctor who said he was going to be, he was going to be a, what's he going to be, all oh, is that? Was he going to be like an astrophysicist astronaut yeah astronaut he was going to be an astronaut another one was going to be a vet another one was going to be an art director like it's crazy the different stories that that kind of the things that happened that caused them to shift their focus yeah (laughs) yeah exactly Well, here at LLS, we are dedicated to creating a world without blood cancers. And on today's episode, we'll be speaking about one of those blood cancers, which is AML, acute myeloid leukemia, which is a series of mutations in the the DNA of the myeloid stem cell. So for those listening, Dr. Arigiano, how does AML develop for an AML patient? Yeah, so AML is, you know, obviously a cancer of the blood, and it starts in the bone marrow. The parent cells in the bone marrow, or what we call the bone marrow stem cells, they're invisible to the eye even under the microscope. We think that a few of those cells, so a few of those cells can produce all the blood in the body. Normal white blood cells, their job is to fight infection. Red cells deliver oxygen to the organs in a protein called hemoglobin that provides energy, and platelets are the particles that help clot the blood and stop bleeding when it happens. So leukemia starts in the bone marrow, which is considered the blood factory. We think that the bone marrow stem cells acquire mutations over time, and when the body can't get rid of those cells that are damaged because of these mutations in their DNA, these cells start to grow out of control, and eventually they can overcrowd the bone marrow and spill into the blood. And so we think that that's how leukemia AML starts. And so those abnormal cells, they're called leukemia blasts, and they can be seen in the blood as well. So at the same time that the leukemia blasts overcrowd the marrow, they also cause a sort of bone marrow failure where the bone marrow is not 
making enough of the good cells. It's making too many of the bad cells, not enough of the good cells. There's another disease that's related, MDS or myelodysplastic syndrome. And patients with MDS have some of the same process as AML, but when the blasts reach a certain level, by definition, that's called AML. And right now the definition of AML is when the leukemia blast, either in the blood or the marrow, reaches 20% or more. A lot of people really ask, you know, how can AML be prevented? And I know you said that um, mutations form. There's really no way that we can prevent AML at this point, is there? No. Unfortunately, there is no preventative measures or treatments for this. So I just tell patients, you know, we try to avoid things that we know are carcinogens or that could produce those mutations in the DNA of our uh, stem cells. But yeah, as of now, there's no way to prevent it. And it's nothing that we did like wrong or the person did wrong. No. A lot of people feel that they did something and, and that's what caused it. And really we find that it can happen to just about anyone. And mutations usually do happen. Exactly. And that's what I tell my patients. That's one of the first questions that I get when I see a new patient with AML is, you know, was there something I did? And there really isn't anything. There is a type of AML that can result after there's a minority of patients for whom we can pinpoint a reason or we can come close to pinpointing a reason. And that's patients who have had exposures to known carcinogens. About 5 to 10% of patients with AML, we say that it arose because they were exposed to either chemotherapy or radiation therapy for the treatment of another cancer, and that's called therapy-related AML. So the other things that may be associated are Agent Orange, benzene, things like that. But, you know, it's not anything. see patients with breast cancer, prostate cancer, who have had either chemo or radiation, and they go back and they say, well, I shouldn't have taken those treatments. But I tell them, you know, at the time, that cancer was a deadly cancer, and so if you hadn't had that treatment, you know, you wouldn't have lived mm-hmm. all these years. So it's, you know, it's an unfortunate thing that right. can happen. So when someone comes into a doctor's office and is then later referred to a specialist because it's highly likely they may have leukemia, what are a few of the signs and symptoms of that patient? So symptoms are things that the patient will feel, and signs are things that the patient or the family members will see. Uh, And those are due to the blood count abnormalities. And so because leukemia crowds out the bone marrow and prevents it from making good, healthy cells, the symptoms uh, pertain to that abnormality. So people can come in with an infection that won't clear because the white blood cells are too low, or if the white blood cells are high, uh, those aren't good. Those aren't the good white blood cells. Those are leukemia blasts that are considered white blood cells, but they're cancerous cells. And then bleeding. When the platelets uh, reach to levels that are critical, the person can start having easy bruising or bleeding. So that's a common presentation of these patients. And then the most common is actually fatigue and shortness of breath. And that's because of the anemia. So when the hemoglobin count is so low, people get really tired, and even your mentation can slow down. It's like everything slows down because your body's not getting enough oxygen to the organs. 
So those are the most common presentations. There are some cases where there are no symptoms and just someone went to the doctor or for a procedure and had a blood count and lo and behold, it's very abnormal. And that's less common for patients with AML. You see more of that in patients with chronic leukemias. What tests are usually performed to confirm the diagnosis of AML? The diagnosis is made by checking combination of blood and bone marrow tests. So we generally get some blood counts. Uh, We can look at the blood cells under the microscope to get a feeling that there's something abnormal. Then we get a bone marrow biopsy and what's called an aspirate, which is drying out some of the liquidy part of the bone marrow. So we take that to the pathologist and I actually enjoy looking at these cells under the microscope so they know that (laughs) I'm going to be down there looking at them with them. So we look at the cells under the microscope to see how they look. And then we do further testing. We get what's called a karyotype or a chromosome analysis where the pathologist measures out these chromosomes. So, you know, we have 23 pairs of chromosomes and they're numbered 1 through 22, and the 23rd pair is the sex chromosomes. Females have two Xs, males have an X and a Y, and so we know what normal chromosomes look like. So in about half of patients with AML, the chromosomes are abnormal, and some of these abnormalities are actually predictive of the prognosis of the disease. So some of them predict better chance of cure with chemotherapy, treatment alone and no need for bone marrow or stem cell transplantation. Some of these chromosomes, there's something that we call complex karyotype, where the the chromosomes in the leukemia cells have more than three abnormalities, so they're really abnormal. That karyotype is predictive of a worse prognosis. So we use that information to decide subsequent treatment. The initial treatment is the same for most people except for one specific type of leukemia, that APL, that I looked at when I was a resident. We also look at for gene mutations. And so gene mutations, there's a whole host of genes that can be mutated in these AML blasts. And some of those predict a more favorable prognosis and some of those predict a less favorable prognosis. So we take all this information together and then we come up with sort of a, a picture to to discuss with the patients, this is what I think your prognosis is based on the data that we have, and then make a treatment plan based on that. And usually for AML, either patients are children or patients are a little bit more advanced in age, right? Not a lot in the middle, but more so at the two ends. The average age of the patient with AML is older, so it's actually older than 60 years. There's another leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, where it has sort of that dual age distribution, where it's the most common in kids and less common in adults. Most cases with AML are in adults. And since they're more advanced in age, I know the treatment is very, for lack of a better term, toxic or or very aggressive uh, for AML. And a lot of patients may have other comorbidities or other illnesses that they're dealing with. Does that affect the type of treatment that you provide to patients? Or how does that go into the decision-making of what treatments the patient can get? 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, ex exactly the point. And I actually focus on the treatment of these older patients that may be frail or have more comorbid conditions. And so it is more difficult to treat patients of advanced age with AML because with aging also comes other medical problems, right? diabetes, heart disease, vascular disease. And so ultimately the prognosis of the patient will depend not just on the leukemia it itself, but also on the characteristics of the patient, like age, other medical problems, things that may make it difficult to give very strong chemotherapy. And you also, you mentioned before MDS, myelodysplastic syndromes. Can you just talk about the difference if somebody has MDS and it does go to AML? It doesn't mean that if you have MDS, it will necessarily go into AML, but there's more of a chance of that, correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, so AML is a very rare disease, so fewer than one out of 100,000 people will get AML. But in patients with MDS, that is more common. About 25% of patients with MDS will ultimately develop AML. And MDS, we refer to it sometimes as a pre-leukemia because it can be a precursor to AML. And the prognosis of what we call novel AML, which is AML that came out of the blue, versus mm -hmm. secondary AML, which is AML that followed MDS, the prognosis of de novo AML tends to be better than secondary AML. And does it have a different treatment at the beginning, or are most people provided with the same initial treatment? That's one of the recent advancements in the treatment of AML is that before it used to be what we call induction or a regimen called 7 plus 3 induction. There are some centers that add a third agent called fludarabine to that treatment, and it was one size fits all. And now there's a new drug. It's called Vixios, and it's approved for AML either with myelodysplasia characteristics or secondary AML, so AML after MDS. And so the treatment it used to be the same, but now it's a little bit different. Ultimately, if a patient had MDS and it progresses to AML, we move toward getting that patient into remission and then stem cell transplantation with a hope of cure. And for those de novo patients, the patients that present with AML, we've heard a lot of patients that may not have a lot of the signs and symptoms, but they go into an emergency room and emergency room physicians find the blood count is so abnormal. What's the best plan for somebody that goes into an emergency room and is diagnosed? Do they have to start treatment right away there or is there options to go to a cancer center? That's a very good question. So I kind of have, have seen all the permutations of ways that people can present. One would be that you had a cold and you went to your doctor and they see that your counts are abnormal, but they're not terribly abnormal. Your white count is maybe 15,000 and not 100,000. So if you're not very sick, there is time to have a conversation and go over the different treatments and, and get all your diagnostic material in a non-emergent situation. But if you 
are in the emergency room, then there would be reason. Usually people that end up in the emergency room are sick. So those are the people that have either bleeding or infection or severe shortness of breath from the anemia. So they end up being admitted. I think there's some data that shows that patients that are treated at university centers may do better than patients that are treated locally, although we have really good partnerships uh, with our community oncologists, and we help them to you know, figure out who, who should stay or, and who should be transferred. So for the patients that's sitting with you, uh, Dr. Arjano, is there a common question or concern that is brought up multiple times in multiple patients that you think many of our listeners should also be made aware of? The first question that they ask is, what is my prognosis? Am I going to live? And so, and the next question is, what is the best treatment for me? And I think it really depends. I think in the patient that is perfectly healthy, not just young, I'm not an ageist, you know, we're all getting older, so (laughs) I don't make... That's important, that's important to be all encompassing. (laughs) So I, I don't make decisions based on age alone. Although I do, (laughs) in my very lovely 90-year-old, she said, look, doc, I don't want to live to be 100, so you just need to keep me out of trouble for as long as you can. I definitely don't want to be in the hospital for the remainder of my life. So I think it's important to discuss the prognosis and the goals of treatment. You know, are we going for a cure here? Or because if we are, then I'm willing to take more of a chance and I'm willing to spend more time in the hospital away from my family. Or are we going for what we call palliation? We're going to do maybe less. uh, We're going to try to control uh, the symptoms and maybe control the leukemia for a period of time. But we know that quality of life is going to be more important than uh, cure. Right. You bring up a great point, and that's something that we always try to emphasize as well with patients and caregivers, is the importance of communication. You spoke about that 90-year-old who, you know, openly said to you, listen, my goal is not to be alive till 100. We try to encourage our patients and our caregivers to understand that once they're in that room with their doctor, there are two experts. It's the doctor, and then there's them who actually know exactly how they're feeling and exactly what they want. So we can't stress enough how important it is for people to communicate with their doctors and feel comfortable to do so. And if not, seek a second opinion or seek another doctor. Exactly. And that's another thing that, you know, I've had patients that have said, hey, I love you so much, but I want to get another opinion because you just gave me some really bad news. And Mm -hmm. I tell them, you know, but I don't want to hurt your feelings. (laughs) Tell them it's it's not about me. You know, it's about you. And you need to be certain that you've explored all the options and that you can make an informed decision about your own life and about your own care. So I absolutely do not take it personally when people want to go and get a second opinion. But I think it's important to highlight what you're saying, doctor, which is twofold, really having the conversation with the patient and making it an active treatment decision, meaning that both parties are taking part in making their treatment decision. I think that's very important and to know the goal because acute leukemias, usually there's a potential for cure, whereas chronic leukemias, usually we say it is a chronic disease, tends to come back, tends to be chronic. So really the goal is not cure, but the goal is 
to maintain a good quality of life in a good remission period and keep getting you know good remission periods but with acute leukemia it's true what you're saying where you can actually have that treatment goal to have a cure or you know you can choose to have a good quality of life which may potentially be a different treatment that potentially has less side effects Correct. so you're feeling better to do more things. So I think that's really important for AML patients to know that there is that choice that I don't think a lot of people really think about because they think, okay, acute leukemia, your goal is cure. Yeah, I've seen a lot of patients that tell me I didn't realize there were options. I just thought it was one, but definitely not every patient is a candidate for an intensive induction, and that's where those conversations are even more important, that people know what they're getting into. At the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, we always advocate for second opinions, and all our key opinion leaders, like you, say, you know, get a second opinion. It's okay, and people are so scared to get that second opinion. But us, the same people, you know, we'll go around to 25 car dealerships trying to look for the best <laughs> deal true. for the best car. But, you know, this is our health care. So I think we have to, I guess, learn that it's okay to go to others just to get a different opinion, just to see what's out there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because there's so many things happening in the field now that it is to your advantage to get another opinion just to see, you know, what doctors are learning out there, especially when there's so much innovative research now going on with AML. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Arijano, for speaking with us about AML and for all that you do for your patients. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time. <laughs>